four-week look in the book of Isaiah. So we are in Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. Isaiah chapter 40. If you're needing a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you or a blue Bible, and that is found on page 599. So we're going to look at Isaiah 40 and then turn to Isaiah 53. And as you find your way there, uh, I want you to know that in 1947, a shepherd living near the Dead Sea thought he lost a goat. And so he went looking for this goat, and he thought the goat had fallen down into one of the caves nearby. And so he threw a rock down in the cave, trying to see if he could disturb the goat and hear it. Uh, but instead of hearing a goat sound, he heard the shattering of a, clot, uh, of a clay pot. And so he decided to lower himself down into the cave, and what he found became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. There were all these scrolls that were uh, sequestered away in these clay pots, and they were actually dated to 100 B.C. So obviously a very valuable find. And uh, so he pulls this out, and the most valuable probably of all the finds was the complete book of Isaiah. And it was on a scroll, if you can even imagine, that was 24 feet long. So you have all 66 chapters on this 24-foot-long scroll. And one of the most important reasons that's important to us, or one of the most significant reasons that's important to us, is because in 1947, the oldest manuscript that we, someone had in the world of Isaiah was dated at 980 A.D. So here we are. We have a, 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 something dated at 980 A.D., and now we find something that's dated 1,000 years earlier. So obviously it was very important to see if our current copy of Isaiah actually matched an Isaiah that was 1,000 years older, or, as some people would say, there were a lot of copious mistakes over time. Well, you'll be able to see that after a 1,000 years. And here's what one scholar concludes after examining them side by side. They prove to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. The 5% of variation consisted of slips of the pen and variations in spelling, but despite the 1,000-year gap, the scrolls were nearly identical, and we know the Old Testament has been accurately and carefully preserved. Isn't that amazing? So here we are. We've been looking at this reliable text of Isaiah, and we've been trying to look at it to help us understand who is Jesus, because Isaiah talks a lot about the first advent or the first coming of Jesus. And we're going to read today in Isaiah chapter 40, so let's stand together as we do that, we're going to read the first 11 verses and then look at Isaiah 53. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall, shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
a voice cry, says, cry. And I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like a flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get up, you, get, get, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. And behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs of his, in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he was born, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You may be seated. Let's take a few moments to reflect together on God's word. One of the things I mentioned before in a previous study in one of the chapters of Isaiah this is the difficulty. One of the difficulties in Isaiah is to know where you are in time because he moves from one chapter to another and he doesn't tell you anything about time. There's no reference to it. And it's important for us to know that there's a big change between chapter 39 and chapter 40. A lot of scholars think of uh, Isaiah being sort of two different books in some ways, 1 through 39 and then 40 through 66. And Isaiah was a preacher to Judah, or he was living in Jerusalem. And he had been pleading for 39 chapters for the people of God to not form a strategic partnership with the world. Here are these people of God who've been rescued from Egypt, miraculously brought into the promised land. God had gone before them and fought their enemies, and they've established themselves. And once they got established, then they started attaching themselves to the things of the world, to the power structures of the world. 
And God was just trying to wave his hands and say, stop attaching yourself to armies or things that you think are valuable in this world. Hold on to me. But unfortunately, no matter how hard Isaiah preached, the the people's hearts got harder and harder. And these were people, it's important for us to know, that were people inside the church. Isaiah is not a preacher to the outside world like Jonah might have been. Isaiah is a preacher to the people that are inside the church. And so these people, even though they become hard-hearted, there are still people who come to church. They, they give money in the offering basket as it goes by. But when they go back home, they just get sucked into the world. They're really living their lives in accordance with the world. And so eventually, Isaiah has to, to deliver a very difficult message. We're going to read it uh, in chapter 39, through 5 through 7. Here he comes to the king named Hezekiah. And Isaiah says to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Very interesting just addition. He's not just the Lord here to Hezekiah. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of a great army. In other words, you could have attached yourself to God's great army, but instead you attached yourself to the armies of the world. So, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom the father, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the place in the palace of the king of Babylon. It's, it's helpful to try to just grasp the weight of this last message of Isaiah to Hezekiah. Hezekiah is, is a steward of a long history. God had come to Babylon, and remember, he had chosen Abraham. And Abraham's coming out of Babylon, and God's saying, I'm going to take you, and from you, I'm going to establish a nation. And from you, this nation, all nations are going to be blessed. And Hezekiah is holding on to that as a treasure. And now he gets this news from Isaiah that, hey, you know what's going to happen to God's people? They're going back to Babylon. They're going back enslaved. And your sons, Hezekiah, they're going to become eunuchs. I might say it a different way in a locker room, but let's just say they're not going to have any more children. So, So they're feeling completely cut off. They're feeling like there's no hope. We're, we're completely sunk here. And, and because of their rebellion against God, because of their own sin, they're going to feel like they, they've, they've gone so far off the map that it's like they've dropped off the end of the earth. It's like God, when he looks down, he can't even find them anymore. Look at chapter 40, verse 27 with me. This is what they're saying My way is hidden from the Lord. They've gotten so far away from God, their sin has become so weighty. What they think is, when God looks down, he can't even find us. We're so far away from God. 
And I'm guessing some of you here this morning can remember feeling that way. At some point in your life, you just thought, I've, I've blown it. I've been so disobedient. I knew I was doing it at the time, and I feel so badly about it, but it's now like I'm so far away, even God can't come and find me. Or maybe some of you actually feel that way this morning, that you feel like you've dropped off God's map. And it's precisely at this point that Isaiah goes into chapter 40, this message of hope. And he's looking beyond this time of exile. Now he's looking into the future. He's looking even way past his own time. And he's trying to say there is a time where God's tenderness is going to come. You see it in just the opening verse. Comfort, comfort. Speak tenderly. Speak to the heart of these people. Help them know that that they haven't dropped off my map. Help, Help them know that their sin is not too far for me to pardon. And what is it that... God wants these people to hear. That's my question for us this morning. Go and tell these people tenderly and with comfort these things. Now, there's a lot of things I could say, but I'm going to mention three things. Number one, verse two, the war is over. What a great news. The war is over. Number two, verse nine, behold your God. Go tell these people that the war is over and go tell these people to behold now, turn back to God. And verse 8, remind them that the word of our God will stand forever. Those are the three things I want us to look at this morning. First of all, verse 2, the war is over. The warfare is ended. The iniquity is pardoned. And she has paid double for all her sins really means she has paid a full measure. God has exercised a discipline on these people, and they've had the full measure of God's discipline. And it has this feeling that you know if you, if you have a child, you, you, they've done something disobediently, and you have sent them to their room. Now, as an adult, I always long for people to send me to my room. I just please where I can shut the door, and no one's going to bother me. I'd love that. But as a child, they don't want that. They, they want relationship. They want to be connected. And you say to your son or daughter, hey, you've got to go sit in your room by yourself. But as a parent, you're long, you, what you really want is relationship, good relationship with your child. So after some period of time, you go back in. You go back in and you, you speak tenderly. You say, the war's over. And it's such a great moment for you and your child to say, for them to hear, hey, their, their sin is pardoned, their iniquity is pardoned. Now, when Isaiah says this to these people, they really don't understand what he's trying to say completely. What Isaiah is saying is, you've suffered some natural consequences of your sin. And that period is over But in order for God to really pardon all their iniquity, they don't really see how far God has to travel yet. Yes, if you if you sin and you you create distance from God, there's going to be some natural consequences from that. But but in order for God to come back into your room, to your heart, to this world 
It's much more costly than a parent just walking in. And that's where we see Isaiah 53. Who really is going to absorb our iniquity? This suffering servant we think of in Isaiah 53. He was smitten. He was afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquity. Now that's an Easter sermon. But, but we need to connect the birth of Christ with the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ in order for God to actually come back into the world, in order for God to actually come back into our lives. He has to bear the consequences of our sin. And when Luke chapter 2, when the angels come and arrive, uh, uh, announce the arrival of the suffering servant, you remember what they say, and we'll talk about this more tonight. Glory to God in the highest and what? Peace. You hear what they're saying? The war, the war's over. The Prince of Peace has come to put an end to the war. And this is how he's going to do it. He's actually going to pay the price that we deserve. And when the suffering servant cries out from the cross, it is finished. He could have just used Isaiah's words and say, the war's over. The war is over. It's been completely pardoned. Nobody's too far away from God's tenderness. And if you trust in Jesus, the war between you and God, it's over. That's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus comes to say, I'm going to take the penalty so the war's over, so God can come back in relationship with you, to, that you will hear God come to you tenderly and with comfort. So the first thing that we want to pay attention to is just to remember that the war is over. The second thing we want, Isaiah wants his people to do, and I believe us as well, is to behold your God. You see that in verse 9. Get up to a high mountain and say to everybody this good news. Behold your God. Look at God. God wants you who have been connected to the world to, say, to hear him say, stop looking at that and look at the Lord. Just behold the Lord. Just be amazed by the Lord. Be absorbed and swallowed by the, by the Lord instead of the world. Now, I don't know if, if I've told any of you at all that I've recently become a grandparent. If I'd, I don't know if I've said that. So this may be news. I, I became a grandparent. And last Sunday after the service, Nancy and I drove to Rockingham to see our grandson, Daniel Paul Phillips. And so the whole time he never actually did anything but be in my arms or Nancy's arms. He never got in anybody else's arms the whole time we were there. And the first thing I did is sit down, hold him. And I noticed after about 10 or 15 minutes, my wonderful son, my radiant daughter-in-law, they had been yammering on about something or speaking about something important, they might say. And I noticed I hadn't heard anything they said. And I love these two people. I, I really appreciate these two people. But I, I, and they were talking, I'm sure, directly to me. But what was happening? I was completely absorbed by beholding my grandson. 
And I think that's what Isaiah is saying. The world's going to continue to talk and the world's going to continue to ask for your attention. And what he's saying is, could you just take all your attention, even if it's just for a moment, and just behold God? Just behold him and allow that moment of beholding God then to shape the rest of the way you think about your day or the rest of the way you think about your life. Now, Isaiah does that. He sort of piles up different ways you can behold God. And this isn't the main point I want to make make here, but it's like he wants to say there's a, a tidal wave of God's greatness. And let me just point out a few to you. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span of his hand? Do you hear what he's saying? Our God is so great that if you took all the oceans of the world, it would fit into the little cup of his hand. If he, could, if he had a hand and he could stretch it out, it would be all of our known galaxy would fit inside his hand. Verse 15 Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. What a great visual. All the most powerful nations, whether it's Babylon or America, to God, they're like one drop from a bucket. Verse 26. Lift up your eyes and see who created these things. He's looking at the stars. Who created he who brings out their host by number, and what does it say? He's called them by name. Scientists just guess how many stars there are in the entire galaxy. All of known space. And their guess is 100 billion. So that's a one with 24 zeros. That's how many stars they guess are in existence. And God placed every one of them there and has a name for everyone. So Isaiah is just trying to help us understand the, the, the immensity of God. Just behold his greatness. Verse 25, it says, nobody compares to the Lord. He's not like anything else. In verse 31, everyone who waits on the Lord... One day they will have their strength renewed. They're going to run and not be weary. They're going to walk and not be faint. So he wants to pull out a picture and just say, look at the, the greatness of God. Now, that's not really my point here. That's just like additional information. Here are the main things I want you to behold. Number one, verse three, behold, God comes. So as great as all those things are, I think these things are even a little bit greater. He actually comes. He actually comes to people living in darkness. When, when your sin makes you feel like you've dropped off the edge of the earth, he drops off the edge of the earth to come to get you. It's amazing. God always makes the first move. He's not waiting for you. He's not waiting for you to clean up. He doesn't send down directions. He comes down himself. He sends himself down. And when you read through the Bible, the Bible is primarily an account about how God comes to you, not about how you get to God. So he comes, he comes. And you notice in verse 3, it's a very familiar verse if you know the, the Old Testament, I mean the New Testament. A voice is crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, 
You know this voice. John the Baptist. He's, this is, he takes Isaiah 3 and appropriates it to himself as this voice is crying out. And he's saying, here comes the Lord. Make way for him. God is coming in the person of Jesus Christ. Number two, behold, verse 11, he comes like a shepherd. Notice the tender picture here he gives us in verse 11. He will gather us in his arms. He will carry us home. He's not, he's not coming to drive people home. He's coming to, to scoop people up and carry them all the way home. And so when you get all the way home, all the glory, as we sung, it goes to Christ. He's the one who comes. He's the one who gathers us up. He's the one who, who takes us all the way home. So behold how God comes. He comes like a shepherd. And, of course, we know John 10 Jesus says, I am the good, what does he say, shepherd. And then he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. So when God, it's not just amazing that God comes, he comes like a shepherd. And finally, verse 10, very important phrase here, very important word. Look, behold, he comes with reward in his hand, with him. And recompense, that's the word I want to think about. He comes with recompense. Now, the best way to describe this is this, to compensate for previous sufferings. God comes with an ability to compensate for previous sufferings. So question, how do you live faithfully in a world Full of suffering and injustice. I mean, when something happens to you or someone you know, and you say rightfully and accurately, that's not fair. That shouldn't happen to me. That shouldn't have happened to them. And you're a Christian. How do you live in that tense spot? That's my question. How do you live in a world full of suffering and justice? How do you continue to move forward in faith when you look around and say so much of what you see is not fair? And the, my answer as a Christian is recompense. God is coming, and in a way that maybe I can't understand, he comes, and at the end of time, he's going to compensate for all of life's devastations. He has an ability to rewrite the story in some way that compensates for all the injustice that you might have felt from the hand of the world or someone else. Now, a very good picture comes from uh, the book of Joel. It's a very tiny book that gets lost in the Old Testament of a prophet. And he actually lives after Isaiah, and he actually lives at the very end of Israel's existence. So Isaiah can see the sun setting. Joel is standing at the sunset on Israel. He sees the devastation that actually comes. And he describes it like locusts. Joel 1.4 what the locust swarm has left, so this initial swarm of locusts, then great locusts have eaten what they've left. And what the great locusts have left, the young locusts eat. And what the young locusts leave, other locusts have eaten. Have eaten. A nation has invaded Israel, powerful 
and without number. So Joel is standing on the horizon and he sees a horde come in and devastate the land. And then he says in chapter 2, when God returns, a very well-known verse, I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten away. So how do you live in a world that has so much devastation and injustice? Recompense. That coming before God will be his ability to compensate for every disaster. If you don't really believe that, I think you're stuck. Because injustice is still going to happen, and it's going to happen in the world or to you, but you just go, that's a bummer. I mean, you really don't have any way to say, I have some hope. I remember talking to this lady who was on a panel. She was, an, she was at least at that point, an atheist. And we were talking about suffering, and I was trying to help her understand how I would view it. And she said, well, I think, you know, you die, you die, that's it. And I said, but what about the millions of people who live an entire life of suffering? You live in America. You have a pretty nice life. And she said, well, I go, I go down every year to try to help those people. I said, but that's one week, ma'am. What about millions of people who suffer injustice? It's just too bad for them, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it is. I said, I believe in a God who comes with recompense. He has an ability to compensate for all the devastation this life may bring you. That's good news. That helps you hold on through difficult times of this world that just don't seem to make sense. So I want you to hear. I want you to see the greatness of God. I want you to just behold how great God is. I want you to understand who he is and Understand that he comes and he brings a kind of peace. And finally, verses 6 through 8, I want you to hear. Isaiah wants us to hear. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You see that in the middle of the pace. What, what shall I cry out to these people? Say to them, all flesh is grass. It's, all of its beauty is like a flower of the field. It, it withers and fades. The people are like grass, but the word of God will stand forever. A pastor, true story, was attending a monthly ministerial alliance. This is where a bunch of pastors get together once a month. And one pastor came into the group and said, I've seen it all. And everybody said, what, what happened? Well, I, I went to a wedding with my wife. We were just in attendance and this young official, this pastor who was the official that, sun, that Saturday for the service, you know how you just get going and then you say things you really don't intend to say? And all the pastors are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this guy, he a whopper. We're like, well, what happened? He said, well, he's looking at the groom and he's saying, Bob, you're, 
you're looking at your bride and she's beautiful and she's radiant and you can't imagine any more any any person any more beautiful right and you love her with all your heart but do you know many years from now you will wake up one day and she will look like her mother oh 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 i mean the things you never want to say as a pastor and everybody said well what did you do? And the guy said, everybody looked at the mother, you know. <laughs> uh, the, the grass withers and the flower fades for the bride and the groom, I might add. But it's a funny story, but he, it, unfortunately, stuffed both feet in his mouth. I can't even imagine the reception after that. But no matter how beautiful the object that you love tomorrow morning is, the iPhone 10, the toy that you wanted, the bicycle that you got, whatever it is, tomorrow, after tomorrow, it starts fading away. And at some point, it's a garage sale item. Right? Or it's a piece of technology you just have to throw away. Nobody actually wants it anymore. And you were so excited to get it. And that's what Isaiah is trying to say. No matter how powerful the nation, no matter how difficult the time, I want you to know that all the things of the world, no matter how powerful or glittery or beautiful, they're all fading away. But aren't there times for all of us where, where the promise of, promises of God look very small in comparison to the power of mankind. Don't you have those times where you go, well, yes, I mean, I hear what Isaiah is saying, but Babylon really looks pretty big right now. I I hear this word of comfort, but I don't feel this word of comfort. How's God going to make a highway in the desert? How he's going to bring the mountain down? I just don't see it. And he tells Isaiah, cry out and say, you see all these things? Only one thing lasts forever, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. And Christ Community Church, the same is true today. You may have some mountain on top of you that is so heavy, that's so big, that doesn't look like it can possibly be brought down. And whether it's in this lifetime or you have to wait on the Lord all the way through your lifetime, the one thing that's going to breach time itself is only one thing. That's the word of the Lord. And our role is to just wait on the Lord. And instead of saying, I see his word, but I've got to grab hold of the world, Isaiah is just saying, behold God. Behold who he is. Behold his word. Trust that he's going to come tenderly. And even if you have difficult times today or unjust times today, he comes with recompense. And he can restore whatever's been eaten away. And you're never going to get in heaven and say, God, I just wish you had done it some other way. That's never going to happen. Anything you feel like you missed out on in this life will be obliterated by the joys of the ones to come.
So if you're here today and you came with a family member and maybe you don't really know too much about Christianity, really my question to you would just be, what word do you believe in? Because everybody believes in some word. Because if you say, what do you believe? You'll say, well, I believe what? What my mother said, what I saw on television, a book I read. I mean, something. I would just invite you to consider the reliability of God's word. Just an invitation. I'm not making any demand. Just inviting you to, to just seek out the reliability of God's word. And if you're here and you're a Christian, Christmas can be so joyful, but it probably brings up some painful moments somewhere along the way for many people. Wait in the Lord. Trust in his word. He will renew your strength. Let's pray together. Lord, we come this morning, this um, Christmas Eve. Big, big ball of emotions. Some excited, some joyful, some can't wait, some curious, some questioning, some anxious, some discouraged. And we want to be people who hear these words like Isaiah. We want to, want to remember that the war is over because of your son. That's the main part of every life. We want to behold you. We don't want to behold what we get tomorrow morning. We want to behold you and then see what we have in light of the greatness of who you are. And no matter how big, no matter how powerful, no matter how beautiful the world's offerings are, may we just trust in the word of the Lord that will stand forever. Would you give your people great joy, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.